Yeah, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. We're getting some more details on the uh, Online News Act and, and more specifically how this money from Google is going to be allocated to media outlets in Canada. Remember, the original premise under the law, which was designed to encompass Google and Meta, would be that these companies would enter into agreements with media outlets, which would basically compensate them for the links to news that appeared on those platforms. Meta said, this doesn't work for us. We want nothing to do with this, so we'll just stop linking to news. And then we don't know anybody anything. I don't think that's what the government expected or hoped, but that remains the case. Uh, Google eventually uh, agreed to something, which the government has held up as a big victory, but it certainly represents a big departure from what this was all supposed to be in the first place. Far less, by the way, than what the legislation originally entailed, not to mention... The deals that had previously existed between Google and Meta, for that matter, with news organizations that have fallen by the wayside as the government has pursued this. Here was Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange today. It's an exchange of value between Google and news outlets. So, of course, it, it concerns first and foremost content that is online. Second of all, uh, content that will um, also be on the platform, on Google. So this is why, um, you know, 30% is, represents pretty much a third of the, of the uh, total of the envelope. So it's pretty fair. So we tried to make sure that uh, there's a, um, a fair compensation for broadcasters, for publishers, and we capped the amount for CBC Radio-Canada. So 7%, a maximum of 7% would go to CBC. Broadcaster to split 30% of that, the rest would go to print and digital. So the government's deciding that, which, again, was not supposed to be how this was all going to work. I mean, well, as for Meta, is the government negotiating with Meta? Well, it takes two to negotiate. And uh, everybody has seen uh, the approach that uh, Meta and Facebook has taken, which is to not participate in the legislative process, not to participate in the regulatory process. Uh, so, no, there, there is no negotiations currently with Facebook. However... Uh, the legislation will be enforced on December 19, and the CRTC will have to examine which platforms fall under the legislation. And uh, I'm sure that CRTC will pay close, close attention to uh, Facebook and Meta. Okay, so in the meantime, uh, Google is at the table. But in order to make this work, the government has really had to bend. As our next guest says, they've used the regulations to largely eviscerate Bill C-18. You can read his uh, latest at michaelgeist.ca. Uh, Dr. Geist is a uh, law professor at the University of Ottawa and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Michael, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the announcement today, the significance of what this represents. Uh, what stands out to you here? Well, I think the main thing, and you just highlighted it, is that really this is no longer Bill C-18 or the Online News Act, at least not the law that the government spent uh, more than a year promoting. You know, they talked about a law that they would not be directly involved. They were setting the table, we were told, between negotiations, between the platforms and news outlets, and really wouldn't have involvement other than that. And, and what we're left with is, frankly, the complete opposite, where the government has actually done the negotiating. There's quite literally in, in the regulations an exemption for the largest search engine operating in Canada. This is basically what the wording says, as long as they pay $100 million. I mean, it's, it's that it's that level of, of change. They've also now, as you mentioned, dictated precisely how the allocation would go and even who qualifies for all of this. So the idea that the government kind of is, is off in the sidelines and it leaves it to the industry 
is belied by the fact that at the end of the day, it's a bit of a shakedown, government demanding something. They're getting it from Google. They're not getting it from Facebook. And it's not clear that many media outlets will end up much ahead. In fact, it's pretty clear that I think many will not at the end of the day. Well, and, and I guess that factors out. I mean, you know, this is, is money coming from Google, but you know, what, what about the money that, that's, that's being lost here? Yeah, and there's a lot of that. You know, so the, the $100 million sounds great until you start scratching below the surface. And, and Facebook just this week told the House of Commons committee that they had about $20 million in deals that are, is now lost. Uh, there's quite a lot of expectation that the Google deals were worth at least double that, probably in the 40 to $50 million range. Those get folded into the $100 million, so that's not new money at all. And in part of today's announcement, they also said that there will be administrative fees that can be taken right off the top, and that can be about 5 to 6% by whoever manages this fund. So once you take all of that off the table, you're down to maybe about $25 million in new money, which isn't nothing, of course, but has to be offset when the loss of Google, of uh, links on Meta, the loss of investment in the country, given some of the regulatory uncertainty, and the fact that this is being spread so broadly that there may, in fact, be many news outlets that were thinking they were at least going to get something that actually, based on the regulations, might get nothing at all. And the irony here is that Google's actually being exempted from the law. As much as we talk about this law coming into effect or, or the law producing this, uh, the law will come into effect, but it only applies to Google. And, and under this deal, they're, they're specifically exempt, aren't they? Yeah, well, they're exempted from the final off arbitration. So the, the whole gist of the law, or at least the, the most important right. part of it, was this idea that they would be compelled to negotiate. And if they couldn't reach a deal, we'd go to this final off arbitration system. That's what they're exempted from. Basically, the, the regulations say... If they put out the $100 million, then they won't have to go through any of that. There are still some other provisions in the law that will apply because they are subject to the law. As it stands now, Meta isn't even subject to the law. And while the minister says, oh, this all takes effect next week and the CRTC can begin to investigate, candidly, even that isn't right. Uh, The reality is that that all companies, whether it's Google or Meta or whomever, has six months from when this takes effect to register with the CRTC. So the CRTC wouldn't even be able to conduct anything until midway through next year. So where does that leave us? I mean, once the law comes into effect, I mean, the way it's written, it really would just apply to Meta. They're they're not linking to news on their platform, so it's hard to see how how it would uh, encompass them. It doesn't it doesn't encompass Twitter or or Apple News or Yahoo News. So what what is the law going to do? Right. Well, no, the law really only does apply to Google. It doesn't apply to Meta. Meta isn't a digital news or intermediary because, because they're not linking. So the only one it applies to is, is Google, and Google has now reached agreement with the government that, that at least the, the negotiation stuff has already been settled. Other than that, it doesn't apply. Uh, other than that, frankly, I think for the government, this is something they would like to move on from, move away from as, as much as they can. It's, there was a lot of tough talk, as you all will recall, for a long period of time. The government wasn't going to back down and that this was going to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, we were told. Um, all of that was really at odds with the, the reality. And so what we end up with is far less than the government had promised. Frankly, for some entities, far less than they were probably already getting before from some of the platforms. And the government's tried to make that up a little bit through some funding from the Digital 
from the tax credit system, the later labor journalism tax credit. They're probably hoping the CRTC will throw some money at the broadcasters as part of C11. So they're looking for some ways to, to do this. But in many ways, I think this ultimately becomes a, a, an illustration or a model of what not to do mm. when it comes to this sort of legislative approach. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about C18 and C11 that you mentioned, which are, are different attempts by the government to, to try to regulate the digital world. You, you wrote this week about another piece of legislation we should be paying attention to. This is um, a Senate bill. Uh, but what's passed by the Senate is called Bill S-210, the Protecting Young Persons from Exposure to Pornography Act. The title makes it sound noble, but what do we need to know about this legislation? I'm laughing in part because you need to know that this is probably worse than any of the other bills that we spent the better part of the last couple of years talking about. Yeah. And you're right. From the title, you would think this makes a whole lot of sense. Who doesn't want to ensure that underage kids don't have access to inappropriate content? But what this actually envisions includes age verification requirements so that you have to use largely foreign-based services to verify your age using facial recognition and official IDs being uploaded to these sites. It applies to any site that has where there's sexually explicit content. So that's not just the pure pornographic sites that are out there. That could include Twitter or Reddit or Google. And so all of these could, in theory, be subject to the same rules, including the prospect of uh, having to get age verified to use them. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, it then envisions the prospect of court orders ordering Internet providers to block access to sites that don't comply. And even says, listen, there may be sites that are perfectly lawful, it's okay if those happen to get blocked in the process. Right. As, as you told the Senate committee um, uh, last year, that this isn't just a slippery slope, it's an avalanche, and it's easy to envision all kinds of unintended consequences from this. Uh, the, the end justifies the means. Does that seem to be the, the response to all of these concerns? I think it's a, it's a combination of, you know, certainly some, at least at the Senate, where it did pass, not wanting to be seen to be opposing measures to try to uh, to help children. I mean, that's, that's not a surprising position. And I'm going to suggest that at the House, I don't think enough MPs paid attention to what this bill even involved. Because somewhat surprisingly, as part of that vote, the government actually does not support this legislation. So no government ministers voted for it to send it to committee. Instead, it was the combination of the Conservatives, NDP, and the Bloc that basically were able to get it approved at second reading and then sent on to committee for review. And, I mean, that's odd because it, it really goes against what much of what the Conservatives had to say now for, for many months about Internet freedoms and uh, the concerns about CRTC regulation. And right. yet the bill in the House is sponsored by a Conservative. They voted for it in its entirety, or the entire party who were there voted for it. And so there's there's a lot of concerns, I think, right now that this is far closer to becoming reality than I think some suspected. Most thought it was one of those bills that just doesn't go anywhere. But given that, as you mentioned, it has passed in the Senate and now passed second reading in the House and has apparently the votes from the three opposition parties, it may well be closer to becoming reality than many would have expected. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a role reversal in many ways. And, and ironically enough, I mean, you know, where the CRTC has been thrust into uh, the role as regulator on C11 and C18, with the enforcement of this, this would likely fall to the CRTC, wouldn't it? It likely would. The legislation doesn't specify. It merely says there's going to be an agency responsible for doing things like trying to enforce against these sites or then enforce the website blocking that we mentioned earlier. But it's pretty obvious 
who the likely agency would be. So yet again, if this were actually to become law, it probably would become the CRTC. Well, someone to keep a close eye on. Now, much more of the background on this and uh, these other issues. Again, Michael Geist.ca. Professor Geist, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks All the best. Uh, that's Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Uh, so a great resource uh, for you know some analysis uh, of what's going on with C-11 and C-18. But he says this is one to keep a close eye on, too. Bill S-210. And yeah, some of the roles are being reversed here in terms of who's crying foul or who's prepared to support uh, CRTC regulation of the Internet or censorship or trampling on Internet freedom. Uh, Again, yes, uh, some noble goals here and wanting to protect young people from exposure to pornography, which is uh, conveniently enough in the in the uh, title of this legislation. But the idea of. Government-enforced, as Michael Geist describes, a government-enforced global website liability for failure to block underage access, backed by website blocking and mandated age verification systems that are likely to include facial recognition technology. And we're going to ask the CRTC to regulate all of this? And again, as he says, it's not just about, you know, Pornhub or XXX. Uh, you know, Google put, could potentially fall under this. Twitter could potentially fall under this. Reddit could potentially fall under this. Tumblr could potentially fall under this. All kinds of different websites and platforms that are not explicitly porn websites, uh, but do contain some explicit content. The idea that you would have to use facial recognition technology to demonstrate that you're old enough to go on Reddit. <laughs> Maybe not uh, such a happy Friday, I suspect, for many firearms owners across the country as the federal government's uh, sweeping new gun control legislation, Bill C-21, is uh, now much closer to becoming law. All that remains now, basically, is royal assent. C-21 last night passed third and final reading in the Senate. It passed unamended. No need for the bill to go back to the House. That's that as far as this part of the journey is concerned. But a lot of questions still as to what comes next. This is really just the end of the beginning. Now, of course, comes the whole matter of implementing all of this. There is, of course, still a lot of uncertainty as to the cost, the scope, the mechanisms, uh, this gun buyback program uh, that's supposed to be a part of this to, uh, I guess, compensate firearms owners for these uh, now banned so-called assault style weapons that uh, this legislation covers. Uh, But the bill has passed the House, now passed the Senate. So joining us for more on what next, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ragil Taka, who is CEO and Executive Director with the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, firearmrights.ca. Rod, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Uh, Let me just get your thoughts, your reaction at at the end of uh, this phase of C-21. Well, the uh, the federal government and well, I guess that would that would be the Liberals, the NDP, and the Bloc have uh, have achieved um, a goal, which is, um, if it was, uh, to ban 100% of the registered legally held handguns in Canada, because that's what Bill C-21 does, and then some unknown number of crime guns. But the Toronto Police Service uh, have told us that 97% of the handguns that they take off the streets are illegally imported from the United States. So I guess this is what uh, this is what they've uh, they've accomplished. 
Let's cover what it does. And I guess there, there's two main components here. One involves handguns, as you mentioned. The other involves what the government calls assault-style rifles. So as far as handguns are concerned, this enshrines in law a handgun freeze. Uh, so for anyone who owns a handgun, uh, there would be no ability to... to pass that on to anybody else no ability to sell that to anybody else what's the what does the freeze mean first of all well it's a ban they like to use you know these other terms a pause a freeze freezing the market all the rest of that stuff um i own handguns and i have for a long time and basically uh, i'm in a position where i can still use my handguns for now as i was before mm-hmm. um, but if one of them breaks uh, i cannot replace it right. if i die the uh, the RCMP will come uh, to my house um, probably immediately as soon as they find out that I have died, and they will seize all of my handguns. Um, and in my case, I don't know, it's probably 20 grand worth. And they'll give my family nothing, and they'll destroy them or keep them themselves or whatever it is that they're going to do with them, and that's, that's the end of it. So as they And they've done a calculation, and apparently it'll take 50 years for all of us, uh, us people, as it were, to, to die off and for our entire culture to be extincted. So, you know, I, I, while I understand that they like to use language that, uh, that suits them, that's, that's actually what this bill does. Right. So retailers can no longer import them. They, they cannot le- be legally sold in any capacity in Canada. Right. Well, there's one, there's one uh, option, and that's, you know, I could sell my handguns to a business while I'm still alive. And it's like, and it's, and it's hilarious that they would even say that because it's like, well, the business can't resell the handgun. They can't do anything with it. Right. So a friend of mine owns a, a gun shop, and he's like, well, I, I wouldn't buy a single handgun. What, what am I going to do with it? And I'm like, I know that. But other than that, no, they take these firearms with no compensation from the people who haven't done anything, shot anyone. And so that's why gun owners are angry. It's really it's a bad bill. As far as uh, semi-automatic rifles are concerned, um, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth on just how broad the scope of C-21 was going to be and what exactly the government was trying to ban here to to come up with a coherent explanation or definition as to what an assault-style weapon is and how one would be distinguished from any other semi-automatic rifle. Where did we end up? Well, we ended up with a definition of what an assault-style rifle is. And so that's a, basically a centerfire semi-automatic uh, rifle that has a detachable magazine. There's some other um, details in there. But basically, this is a, a definition that applies to any guns going forward. And so this is the way that the Liberals, the NDP, and the Bloc have been able to, to sell it, um, as opposed to what they tried to do with those big amendments back in the, uh, in the middle of, uh, of this last year. Um, but that's not where it ends. Because the government has said, okay, well, all future models can't come into Canada that, that look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then everybody's like, oh, phew, I guess my guns are safe. It's like, oh, no. They're, they're forming, reforming the Canadian Firearms Advisory Committee, CFAC, as they call it. They're going to determine who's on that committee, and then they're going to take instruction from that committee on what guns to ban using order and councils as, on an ongoing basis. So, in fact, it you know, the instructions from that committee can be um, even more indiscriminate than those two uh, amendments were, amendments G4 and G46 during the committee meetings way back there. So uh, this could result in even more gun bans than there were in the first place. So I don't, I'm not sure what it is that they're really up to. Okay, so even if a, a rifle is not encompassed by this bill now, that, that could change in the future. Any, yeah, exactly. Any yeah. rifle whatsoever, any rifle shotgun, that's they can this committee can say well we want it banned and the liberals have openly 
said that we will ban whatever they instruct us to ban because they're the committee, they're the experts. So it's a real farce, and it's just it's it's incredibly damaging. Right, and the liberals seem to tie themselves up in knots on some of these points here. That you know, the question was, well, why are you banning some semi-automatic rifles and not others that are functionally the same? Well, then we got to a point where they were expanding the scope, and then the pushback was, well, why are you banning hunting rifles when you said you weren't going to ban hunting rifles? And then they tried to untangle themselves there. It was a real mess. But uh, are, are we still in a situation where there's uh, a lack of logic here, where some guns uh, for now are banned, similar firearms are, are not, and there's no good reason why well there's almost no justification and that's and that's why the liberal party um and well i've had it from the block i've had it from the ndp i've had it from the liberals um this is why they rely on villainizing people you know saying that you know the, the gun lobby in canada meaning us because we are the gun lobby in canada you know we're nra style and all the rest of this yeah. this crazy slander um to make people think that we're not just everyday canadians like everybody else um, and, uh, you know, they've, they've relied on a lot of that kind of uh, politicking to try to get people to, to go along with this. And it's very easy for the average Canadian to go along with this because most Canadians don't own any guns. And they don't understand why they're so important. They don't understand the people that own them. But they're just everyday people, too. So, um, look, you know, Canadians will they, – they should, they should understand that at the end of the day – and this is really important – this is really a property rights issue. It's the government being able to take whatever it wants, whenever it wants, from anybody and using all kinds of methods, whether it's slander or campaigning against people or whatever. Um, this is a property rights issue, and we are the canary in the coal mine. So, you know, they'll get away with this probably because, I, like I said, most Canadians don't own guns, but, but we've already seen what, uh, you know, what some of their plans are in other aspects of our society, and who knows what's next. Yeah, which speaks to the language in this debate. I mean, I think if you ask Canadians, do we need to ban semi-automatic rifles, you'd probably get a much different response than when you ask the question of should we ban assault-style weapons. It would be Absolutely. like, well, we're going to ban killing machines and we just start using over-the-top language that doesn't have any functional meaning. But I, that's, it's been very deliberate on the government's part, hasn't it? Well, well, it has. And, you know, it's, it's really difficult to communicate to Canadians that how important it is for us to take the temperature down in all of these, polit like, politics, I've never seen it like this my whole life. And I was just thinking about this yesterday, Rob. And I'm like, the way, because there was a senator um, that did her last speech last night. Actually, it was the night before last. And she said that, you know, basically us as an organization uh, are, are white supremacists and all kinds of other slander. And I'm wondering, like, do you have one example of any of that? And, like, we're yeah. just regular people, right? And I thought, you know... The way that politics is being done in Canada right now, and that's, some, that's a senator, a sitting senator. I don't know if we can reel this back in, if we can ever bring that reasonable tenor to our political discussions anymore, because it's a real problem. And I've really experienced it as an everyday Canadian in the gun debate. And people probably, I think people just have to reject that kind of stuff and start thinking on a factual basis. Is a bill like, like, like C-21, is that going to do anything? Is that going to impact the lives of criminals at all? And I'll tell you right now, because I'm an expert in this bill, it doesn't. And that's, that's a problem for me as a Canadian. 
Right, and I think that's that's been missed in, in this whole debate. Like, how is this actually addressing public safety? And and I think you know we've seen in recent years we, we do have some public safety issues. Uh, we do have guns that are being smuggled in across the border that are being used by criminals. Uh, maybe there are some issues too when it comes to our existing red flag laws. Like, there are ways that we could be addressing public safety, but it seems like this just misses the mark completely. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, it's funny because of all this of all this villainization of the gun lobby, which is, you know, just people like me and like Tracy Wilson and our and the hundred thousand Canadians that are supporters of the CCFR. It's 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 as if we don't want a safer Canada. You know, we're a reasonable group that say, yeah, there's a there's a place for regulation and firearm ownership, absolutely, because I don't want criminals getting easy access or legal access to guns either. I have kids that live downtown Vancouver. I don't want them hurt, you know. So we, you know, we we just we got to shake off this uh, this this new culture of politics in Canada. We have to start rejecting these parties that engage in this demagoguery and this slander as as you know a way to to promote bills or to you know to explain bills to the to the public. It's it's got to get factual. The media has a big part to play in that by rejecting that kind of politics. But Canadians actually have to start looking into this themselves because they, they can't trust politicians to do it. It's, it's, it's not very good. So in terms of where we go from here, royal assent will come soon. I, I think the legislative side of this is, is done. But is, is there a legal avenue here or are there other ways that, that maybe this could be stopped or, or changed in any way? No. Uh, this is uh, C-21 will become law and it's only a matter of days or, or a week um, you know, if it, if it makes it before Christmas. But the only way in our system the government can pretty much do anything that it wants to anybody, because we tried suing the government. We spent $2.5 million doing it in three years. And the government, this is actually quite interesting, Rob, the government came back and said, uh, no, the government can just take whatever it wants from anyone it wants, and it doesn't owe any procedural fairness to gun owners. And this is a very important property to millions of Canadians. And then it was like, I don't know, what was it, two weeks later, Rob, that I see a story that a court, a federal court, same, same court that we, uh, we litigated the government uh, in, said, well, you know what, you can't, we've decided that you can't ban plastic straws or plastic shopping bags, and it is far overreaching and unconstitutional. <laughs> what is going on in Canada right now? So, you know, suing the government, we tried it, we are appealing because we mm-hmm. lost. And uh, at the end of the day, you just have to get a new government. And I'm just hoping that Canadians have woken up to the economy and private property and all the other reasons and the political climate and have decided that it is enough of these kinds of people in government and we, we need a change. So be really careful when you vote because that's really the only option that you have right now. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, much more is mentioned firearmrights.ca. Rod, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Friday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. We'll get back to some more of your phone calls. Uh, much more still to get to here as well. Uh, this is uh, part of what's been an ongoing conversation, I guess, when it comes to figures from uh, Canadian history. And I guess the lead up to Canadian history and to what extent they should be honored and celebrated today. Uh, whether through statues or other public buildings or parks named after them. And how do we put those historical figures in today's context? 
Uh, what makes someone a historical hero or a historical villain? And what standards are we using? So, like I said, we've been through a lot of those uh, debates, whether it be John A. MacDonald or Ryerson or a long list of other figures. I guess we can add Henry Dundas to that list. In Toronto, the decision has been made. Young Dundas Square is going to be renamed. Also, uh, some of the subway stations that bear the name Dundas, that will be changed. The Jane Dundas Library will also be renamed. So Henry Dundas is uh, going to be much less relevant in Toronto, as his name is, is erased from, from these honors. Um, so why? And, and for that matter, who was Henry Dundas? Why are squares or libraries or subway stations in Canada named after him? And is isn't an overreaction to now go back and erase all of that. Well, joining us to talk more uh, about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Lynn McDonald, uh, former member of Parliament, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Guelph and a member of the Royal Historical Society. Uh, Lynn, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Well, we'll get into the details of who Henry Dundas was, what he stood for, but let's start with the, the decision, just your reaction to what they've decided to do in Toronto here. Well, it's a very bad decision, and I'm appalled to see it. Uh, Olivia Chow, the mayor, should know better. She's a, a former member of parliament herself, and what Dundas has been accused of doing, he simply did not do. He was pro-abolition. He was against slavery, and consistently so, both as a lawyer and as a member of parliament. The record is very strong, and there are peer-reviewed articles which have shown this, but Olivia and various uh, members of council fell for the cheap shots. I'm afraid the city staff you know, were not well qualified to deal with this, did not get expert uh, people to assist them with it, and did not hold the public hearings that mm -hmm. were promised. So that uh, they went on the basis of very flawed information. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. Dundas was pro-abolition, and they're condemning right. him as being responsible for prolonging slavery. Quite the contrary. Well, we'll get into that. So what, what else do we need to know about Henry Dundas was and, and what his significance was? Well, he had no direct connection with Canada. Right. Uh, he um, uh, endorsed the appointment of John Graves Simcoe to be the first lieutenant governor of uh, Ontario, uh, Upper Canada then. He was a Scottish lawyer and, and politician and very important there and held uh, serious roles in that capacity. So he, w he was certainly highly respected and, uh, 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 you know, and made a name for himself, first of all, by taking a case and getting slavery abolished in Scotland. That's his, his first accomplishment, is as a lawyer uh, going before the law lords and arguing for abolition. Yeah. Well, that's what's so strange about this debate. I mean, you know, people want to make the argument maybe he's not as, as connected to Canada as other historical figures. As you say, that, that would be a logical argument. But his, his sin seems to be the connection to slavery, which is odd because he was an abolitionist. So how, yes. how does he get lumped in now on the other side of that debate? I, I, I do not understand it. It's true he does not have strong connections with Canada, but there are connections. He did appoint John Graves Simcoe, uh, or at least he endorsed it, and he went over. And the uh, John Graves Simcoe uh, is the person who got legislation through the House of Assembly in Ontario uh, uh, to 
gradually abolish slavery. Not immediately. It was very gradual. But in fact, it went through, it got passed, and in fact, Ontario started to get rid of slavery before the British Empire did. So that this gradual approach was certainly, you know, certainly good. He also uh, uh, was important in getting a French accepted uh, within uh, uh, Canadian legislatures and uh, support for a black soldiers who had supported the British. Uh, so uh, he, has, uh, he has connections with Canada, not that he was ever here. Mm-hmm. So the idea that he, that he would support a gradual end to slavery, and I think that's what gets taken out of context, because we understand the evil that slavery is, that, that, we, you know, that, that good people would want it to end as quickly as possible. So the idea that anyone would support a gradual end, I guess maybe that's where he's, he's been vilified here, but, you know, to... to Take an approach that's meaningful and effective, right? That was the reality of the day, and that's what he was trying to do. Well, yes, and indeed, uh, William Wilberforce, who was the parliamentary leader of the abolition forces, had brought a motion into the House of Commons the year before, 1791, and it was thoroughly defeated. And that was, it didn't say uh, immediate, didn't say gradual, it just said abolition. It was assumed it would be uh, uh, immediate, but it didn't have, it didn't pass. And this is where... Uh, particularly Olivia Chow, is just so far out of it. She was a member of Parliament. And a motion is not a law. A motion is an opinion. Mm -hmm. And it can help you to get towards a law by stimulating debate on it. But uh, Wilberforce's motion was only a motion. It didn't have a hope of getting through the House of Lords. It would have to, first of all, become a bill. It has to go through first, second, and third reading and go to the House of Lords. It didn't have a hope. There were lots of slave owners in the House of Lords. Now, Henry Dundas was much more realistic than Wilberforce. He knew it would be complicated. What good does it do to pass a law saying the end of the slave trade if you can't enforce it? And slave traders made money by taking slaves from the coast of Africa to the U.S. and to the West Indies. That is a sad reality, and we Canadians can be quite naive about this, but this went on for centuries. And even Dundas uh, did not have a clear understanding as to how long it would take. He did know it wasn't going to happen overnight, and he wanted to get uh, intermediate steps uh, adopted. And he was aware also of collusion among African leaders. Most of the people who made money uh, were Europeans, that's for sure. But there were African leaders who sold Africans to the uh, slave traders who arrived at the port. They didn't have to go and capture slaves. They were waiting for them at the ports. Slavery was a business, and people made money from that business. And uh, Dundas, at least, was was more realistic about it. But it wasn't going to stop. I mean, the, finally, the abolition of the slave trade was uh, finally adopted in 1807. But probably the slave trade did not really end until the 1850s. It took decades longer because slave ships would be run by people who then put, used false flags, and they just carried on. How are you going to capture, you know, the Atlantic Ocean is enormous. How are you going to capture slave ships? It, uh, it, with great difficulty, and very few did get caught. They did, but very, very few did. And it took uh, negotiations. The British government worked very hard on it when they became committed. The British, the British were into slavery very early on, but they were 
basically the first country to turn against slavery. And they had ordinary citizens who were abolitionists, and they had leaders. And so uh, once uh, uh, there was a commitment to get rid of slavery, the British government, they had a slave trade department in the Foreign Office. That's a slave trade department to get rid of the slave trade, (laughs) to negotiate treaties with other European countries to end it. And even then, you got countries, they agreed to end it, they got legislation passed, but they didn't enforce it. It took, let's say, the estimate is roughly 1850 uh, before it was effectively abolished. And so here we're talking about what Dundas did in 1792. You know, he delayed it? Well, certainly not. I mean, if there are many circumstances that, that delayed it. Slavery made money for people. Yeah. You know, to some extent, this kind of reminds me of the debate around Egerton Ryerson, um, because here was someone who had close relationships with indigenous communities. But, the you know, the distortion of the history has somehow painted him as as an enemy of of indigenous communities. Similar here with Dundas, that someone who was an abolitionist is now, you know, through the distortion of history, made out to be somebody who somehow supported slavery. What, what does this tell us about, you know, the teaching of history, the practice of history in this country? Well, it tells us that uh, uh, the teaching of history is uh, not very thoroughly done, and uh, history is disappearing from from programs, uh, and all of that is very very sad. But you're quite right. The parallels between Ryerson and Dundas are enormously important. They both were, in the case of Dundas, uh, the case of Dundas. Uh, pro-abolition, the case of Ryerson. He was pro-Indigenous. Yeah. He was named a brother by an Ojibwe chief. He supported their land claims. He was decidedly on, on side. I've read a fair bit of the history of this, and there are lots of books written about uh, Ryerson, and he has his own memoir. And residential schools doesn't even appear in the index. He was not an advocate. And this is, this is uh, uh, you know, one of the great horrors that Toronto has made two big boo-boos on renaming, mm-hmm. Ryerson University being renamed and Dundas Street uh, uh, or, or Dundas Square, uh, at least, uh, being renamed for quite the wrong reasons. Now, for other people, there are more complications. For Sir John A. Macdonald, for example, he's not the villain that he's made out to be, but he certainly did do some things that are harmful. Mm-hmm. It's much more complicated. But for Ryerson and Dundas, they are absolutely clean on the, on the issues that they have uh, been subjected to uh, accusations. Well, I'm sure we've not heard the last of all of this. We'll leave it there for now. Lynn, really appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Glad to be with you. Thank you. All the best to you. Uh, that is uh, Lynn McDonald, former member of Parliament, uh, Professor uh, Emerita at the University of Guelph, and a member of the Royal Historical Society. So some frustration from her that we're distorting this history. And if we just want to say, look, Henry Dundas, he, he was Scottish. He didn't come to Canada. Was it a founder of this country? Let's find somebody who was. Okay, sure. But this is different. This is saying, okay, this guy was some kind of villain of history. He seemed to support slavery, and that's the whole reason this came about. And I think Lynn McDonald makes it pretty clear that that's just not an accurate reading of the history. So it is odd that we're taking these people who were truly progressives in their era. You know, that being an abolitionist at what time was a controversial or radical position to take. It was certainly the very progressive position of the day. Uh, Same thing with Egerton Ryerson. 
you know, to, to believe in close relationships with indigenous communities. Somebody who was actually given, as, as Lynn points out, an Ojibwe name by a prominent chief. Someone who worked with those communities and supported the idea of voluntary schools that indigenous children could go to. And somehow we've taken this person, who was very progressive, again, with his ideas, not just about relations with indigenous communities, but just about the idea of free public education. Again, somebody in his day was seen as very progressive, almost radically so. And now we've turned him into a villain. Like, that, that's not the way to do all of this. We can try to quantify, I guess, figures from history, who was greater than who, or who made more contributions, or who was more significant. And that's fine, right? And, you know, there's not enough room to build a statue for every historical figure. There are not enough buildings to name one after every single historical figure. Some will rise above. But the criteria we're using, the distortion of, of history to make those, those decisions, uh, that seems like it's going off the rails. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.